Blog Talk Radio. To the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I'm Robert Winfrey. I'm your host for the evening. We should have a relatively straightforward show tonight. Uh, we'll just be looking at last, well, not last night's, but Friday night's uh, UFC Fight Night 117. Um, there were fights. Some were good, some of them um, less so. But uh, we'll be talking a little bit about that. And uh, we'll close with any major news items that have come out. Because uh, there is no show next week. I get a Saturday off. It's amazing. Well, I'll actually get a whole week. I technically had last Saturday off. Uh, then next week we will be previewing UFC Fight Night 2. Or not Fight Night, excuse me. UFC 216, which I'm kind of looking forward to. At least the top two cards. Uh, cards. Fights. Uh, the rest of it is it's a darn good free TV card. But uh, those two title fights, uh, they should be those should be awesome. Let's hope they hold together. All right, so that's what's on the menu tonight. If any of you have a question or a comment you'd like to get on the air, feel free to call in at 323-657-0901. Preferably something that we can address in like 50 words or less, give or take. Uh, if you'd rather like do this via some form of text format. You can leave comments on the Rattletch and Broadcasting Network Facebook page, or you can tweet me at WinfreyMMA, and I will do my best to get any of those issues you have uh, raised through either of those mediums. So that's out of the way. It should be a relatively straightforward and somewhat uh, short show tonight. If we go, if we do 90 minutes, I'll be shocked. Uh, this is a 60-minute show written all over it. So uh, here with me, as always, 411 Mania's resident jack of all trades. He's in every zone. Uh, Jeff Harris is here with us. How you doing, Jeff? Good. Thank you, Robert. Let us link hands in solidarity. Ugh. Uh, no, I'm not big on touching. All right. What about All right. Slightly better. I mean, we could do a fist okay. bump. I've got a little bit of the Howie Mandel thing. Let's do an, a verbal fist bump. Fist bump. All right. There we go. There we go. All right. Uh, Last Friday evening, to accommodate the time difference, which was still kind of weird, UFC Fight Night 117, the first fight of this card started at like 9 a.m. in Japan. Uh, I have to give some pretty serious credit to the Japanese crowd because this place was, uh, again, this this wasn't a Brazilian crowd, so, you know, we're not rocking and rolling. But it was relatively 
full. There was a notable presence throughout the entire thing. And again, it started at 9 a.m. So a lot of credit to the the local fans for coming out and for contributing to the show. So thanks to the, to any any Japanese listeners, I guess. Thank you guys. If you happen to be at the show, um, main event. This was such a weird fight. Uh, Ovin St. Peru defeats Yushin Okami via technical submission. Uh, Von Flu choke at like 90 seconds of the first round. Minute 50. Um, okay, I'll, I'll yell about the Von Flu choke again in just a second because I, I came up with a list. The Von Flu choke is part of, and I, I'll get to, that, get to that in a second. The most interesting thing about this fight, there was not a single significant strike attempted by either fighter. Okami immediately dived on a double leg, sort of single. St. Prue sprawls. Okami decides to pull half guard. And St. Prue just kind of works back and forth from, you know, trying to pass to maybe setting up the, the, the Von Flu because Okami kept wrapping his head. And eventually he got it, passed, and put Okami to sleep. Um this was basically as expected, absent the Von Flu choke on a fighter who absolutely should know better. You should know Kami. Alright. Again, this this was as expected essentially. Um Jeff, what do you think what did, what did you think about this one? I mean again, I, I think uh, this was basically what we all expected. No, no real surprises here, not even the fact that St. Prue was uh, able to submit Okami and pull off his third UFC victory by uh, Von Bluechoke. Look, Okami was a career middleweight. Um, he's, he was fighting at a higher weight class in this fight. I mean, I know he's, he's fought at um, – I mean, he's fought as low as uh, welterweight against John Fitch in a uh, World Series of Fighting. I'm sure he's probably has he fought had wait had he even fought at light heavyweight before? I don't think he has. Uh, let me double check. Uh, he no, earlier... he's all been middleweight or welterweight. Right. So, th- so I mean, look, he was he went up to a higher weight class. In Open Saint Pru, for all of his flaws, he is a he is a big strong man. Um. So. I'm not surprised by what happened, uh, though I think this was the first submission loss of uh, Okami's, not just his UFC career, but, I, yeah, it was the first submission loss of his MMA career. So, I mean, give Okami credit for taking a fight on basically a week's notice uh, to fight uh, Ovin St. Pru. Uh, that's about it. Uh, easy win, easy academic win for Ovin St. Pru, and not surprised. Yeah, I, I, I. Okay, just as a brief aside, Okami should absolutely have known better than to wrap the head of OSP without actual control over his lower, over the lower half of his body. I mean, if you're fighting someone who doesn't Prue, know how to do Prue the, is six foot four. He's a big guy. He is, and he has and a lot I, of mass. He has a lot of mass and a lot of strength. He does, and that's one of the things that actually helped him finish the choke. And I'm not saying, you know, Okami would have won either way, but when, you have, when you're fighting a guy who is known 
at this point, and even before this fight, for being able to actually finish this particular choke, why in the world would you give him the opportunity to do so? Well, let's also be honest. Has, I mean, I would say Okami was a pretty decent fighter in, in his UFC career, but I would hesitate to call him an elite competitor. And I would say he's he would make, you know, simple mistakes in the past quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I have something in my own head of a list of submissions that if you get caught in, you're probably not really supposed to be in the UFC. Now, sometimes okay. that's because you're young and learning. Sometimes it's because you're old and broken down. And I'm not saying that, you know, anyone who gets caught in one of these should never fight again. That's not at all what I'm saying. But there's a level well, look, of competition. Okami is 36 years old. And this was, I think, um, his 45th career MMA fight. Yeah. So uh, he's got a lot of miles. He's got a lot of miles behind him, and he's put a lot of time into this sport. So he I'm has. not saying he's old and broken down, but, I mean, he's put quite a bit of time into this sport. Yeah, again, I, I'm not saying he's, you know, terrible and should retire immediately, but, again, if you're getting caught in stuff like Omoplatas, Gogo Platas, uh, not neck cranks, can openers specifically, toe holds, um, Von Flute I, chokes, Ezekiel chokes. I got to disagree. I got to disagree because took a fight on one week's notice, was fighting uh, a, guy, a big guy, uh, a career, you know, a career light heavyweight, and he's a career middleweight. Um, it's not something he's used to doing, and that can make a difference uh, quite a bit. And a guy who has a pretty underrated ground game. Uh, and again, I'm not suggesting that he should be cut because he lost, but rather because this particular, I mean, if he gets arm triangled or kimura like, fine. There's only so much you can do to defend that. The fact that against a guy who is known for this choke, you put yourself in literally the only position he can actually, that it's capable of being applied is a stunning sure. level of like lack of fight IQ. Well, well, I would – what I would say to that is Okami has never really struck me as having a, a high fight IQ in the first place. And be being 36, I, yeah, that clear, and all the damage he's taken, that clearly hasn't helped. Um, all right, calling in late, I believe we have Pat Mullen here joining us. Pat, is that you, or am I just going to look like an idiot? Uh, it is. I apologize for the late call in, gentlemen. Technical difficulties being what they are, both of you know what I'm talking about when it comes to that. Yeah, we've we've been there. All right, we're about to move on from OSP and uh, Okami, Pat. So any thoughts on Owen St. Preux getting his third Von Flew choke finish in the UFC? Um, congratulations to OSP continuing to win with a choke, which realistically at this level of fighting shouldn't work. But, he, you know, people come in and don't prepare and let it happen. And, um I'll give Okami a little bit more of a pass on it than I would normally because he was very clearly very outsized in this fight where even if he had given up the bad position he put himself in to get that choke in, it probably wouldn't have gone much differently in a, another position. Um, I, it's just, you know, they had to get somebody on short notice. Okami was allegedly preparing for a fight, and 
He's a name in Japan. He's a guy who had a, at one time, okay UFC run, and why not? Um, he'll probably get a fight at his natural weight class of middleweight for his effort here. Um, I don't see him doing anything or being worth anything right now to that division when it's arguably the best it's ever been. So that's that. All right, moving on. The best fight of the on the card – both on paper and in execution. Jessica Andraj defeated Claudia Gedalia via unanimous decision, 30-25, 30-26, and 30-27. I have a minor bone to pick with um, essentially all of those scores, but uh, let me get through the action here. Uh, this was a really good fight, and I said last week that uh, there's, one, there's a major thing from last week that I didn't, account for and I'm really really annoyed that I overlooked this because eh, it's so freaking obvious and I'm not saying I would have picked any differently had I actually considered it but this is something I don't think it was even really addressed Jessica Andrade is a pressure fighter that is essentially the totality of her game which is not to say that she's bad but she can't fight moving backwards she can't really fight off of the bottom unless she grabs something in uh, transition as she's being taken down. She, the t- again, her game is I'm going to pressure you. I'm going to beat you up to the body and head with hooks in close quarters. I'm going to get takedowns. I'm just going to outwork you until you quit or the fight is over or I am summarily beaten by you know, failure to adjust, which is how most pressure fighters go. And there have been some exceptionally good ones. Again, John Lineker, very great pressure fighter. Who who I love that you threw out the comparison to last week and during the fight broadcast. It, it was mentioned by Dan Hardy that she reminds him so much of John Lineker. So well done. I want to say I stole that from Jack Slack at some point, but I can't, I can't, I can't confirm that he said that first. I just feel like that's something that he would have brought up. Um, anyway, and, and, Claudia, for all of her great abilities, she's great on top. She's ha- she's improved her striking significantly. She fades. She's got a cardio issue. And the pace that Andrade pushed very clearly got to her at the start of the second round. Throughout ha- like the first three minutes of the first round, Claudia was doing really well. She was avoiding most of Andrade's punches. She was landing at distance, uh, you know, landing some pretty good elbows, which is, what, which is a great thing to do on a pressure fighter. If they try to bull forward with their head down, stick an elbow, stick a knee in front of them, and they're going to stop real quick. Or if you're a boxer, you know, I mean, Evander Holyfield was kind of famous when he fought Mike Tyson for any time Tyson was going to lunge in on him, just lower his head. Put something large and bony in front of your opponent's charging face, and they're going to stop real fast. But as that, she gave up a takedown in the, again, about two minutes of the first round, and Claudia off of her back is nothing special. And Andrade got real heavy, uh, just smothered her, beat her up, and then a lot more of that through rounds two and three. My big gripe with the scoring is I have two gripes here. One is giving uh, Jessica the first. She closed that round very strong, but I don't think she won it. I think that she took too much damage. 
charging forward throughout the first, you know, three minutes or so of that round. And I don't think she negated all of that with uh, the way she closed. Again, she did close strong, and it was. I just thought that she sh- she did not win the round. The other one I have a gripe with is thirty twenty seven, because that means you didn't give Jessica Andrade a ten eight third. And for the love of all that is holy, I don't know how you arrived at that conclusion. That round basically started with Andrade pressuring, punching Claudia in the face, taking her down, and then beating her up. I don't think Adelia landed a when I say significant, I don't mean it as it is defined statistically. I don't think she landed any meaningful offense that entire third round. I don't think there's a single stretch of like 20 to 30 seconds that you can score for Claudia in that round. That was a blowout round for Jessica Andrade, and not giving her a 10-8 in the third is, to me, just it, it's just stupid. Like, I don't understand how you arrived at that. The judge who gave Jessica a 10-8 second, I didn't. I gave that to Jessica 10-9. But it was close. And it was close enough to another 10-8 that I'm not going to throw up, uh, you know, I'm not going to complain about it. That was that was a borderline 10-8. And if that's the conclusion that judge arrived at, I don't feel it's terribly erroneous. Um, this was a great performance from Jessica Andrade in the sense that she fought someone a very high caliber opponent and was able to force the fight to consistently be on the terms she wanted it on. And I mean, really she's only the second person to beat Claudia Gadelia. Uh, It's not an easy thing to do. This was a well executed fight from Jessica Andrade. And again, best fight of the car on the card. Uh, This delivered for me, Pat, I'll start with you here. Um, What'd you think about this one? And, were we, did we all just like forget that Je- that Gedalia has gas tank issues and Andrade pushes a uh, murderous pace last week? Uh, I love this fight. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I, you know, th- we all remembered that she had cardio issues. We brought it up, but it's usually you know we don't see her fade until you know at least the end of the second round, if not into the third round. Uh, what happened here was she started off this fight unusually compared to others where she was really doing a tremendous job of, of boxing on the outside, throwing very good, crisp strikes, and doing well with that from distance, cutting angles, and not taking a lot of clean strikes in return, uh, if at all, for at least the first minute of the round. What we saw happen was she tried to transition from striking into grappling with a poorly timed takedown attempt that Andrade was able to negate, take the, the advantageous position of, had her in a guillotine, but here's two things that I want to point out that I see that go on in MMA camps. One, if you're doing a tremendous amount of punching and you switch to an arm in guillotine and you give it everything you've got with the squeeze, you're putting a tremendous amount of stress and fatigue on your arms. And that doesn't get a second win the way you would hope it uh, it does. When you do as much as Claudia did just with her arms in that round, because she didn't really throw a ton of kicks. She didn't throw a ton of knees. Her game almost entirely consisted of boxing techniques and an attempt to take down and the guillotine. That's a lot to put on. And a lot of what I see in MMA camps is you have a particular day where you train your striking. You have a particular day where you train your grappling. 
you generally don't do both of those in the same day or the same training period or in full speed in a sparring session. And that's a problem because when you have to transition from a striking bout to a grappling bout, it makes you fatigued and unable to use your limbs in ways you didn't think were possible until you get there. And when you do get there, you don't have an answer. And that's a problem when it comes to that. And especially when you have gas tank issues, which we know Claudia does. This was an example of all of that coming into play. What made it the worst was the tenacity of Jessica Andrade. Her sheer tenacity is going to make her a problem for anybody who fights her, including the champion, Joanna champion, because I think Joanna would tell you that even their fight was not an easy fight for her because of how much she had to do to keep Andrade from engaging her in close and keeping her off of her. You're going to have to work every second of every round against her. And while she definitely has her clear deficiencies, there's part of her that she's going to do everything she can to just take it, take it, take it, and wear you down by pushing you, making you uncomfortable, and doing what's called making you carry yourself too fast, having to expend a lot of energy and do things you wouldn't normally do. It's a similar tactic to what we saw Gennady Golovkin do to Canelo Alvarez in their boxing match last weekend, where we saw Canelo use a ton of energy through the first three rounds of that fight, and through the middle and late rounds, he really didn't have much of anything to keep Golovkin off of him and kept pedaling and moving. Here, Gadelia didn't have the option to just kind of backpedal and move and use her bicycle because she had an opponent in Andrade who has the ability to put her against the fence, take her down, control her body. And we saw that that was ultimately what made the difference. And Andrade pushed and pushed and pushed and worked and worked and worked, put in her best performance. And I don't necessarily think it's going to catapult her right into another title fight, but I think it's going to keep her in a prominent position for a long time. All right, Jeff, what'd you think about this one? Uh, again, my favorite fight of the card. So uh, what'd you think about this? I think it was a great fight. Uh, I don't have a problem with borderline 10 eights. I think part of the problem with MMA scoring is that we don't get enough 10 eights and we don't get enough 10 tens. Don't think we discounted Claudia Gedelia's cardio issues, but I mean, she had been showing a lot of improvement recently, not to mention she went, three hard rounds with uh, Courtney Casey and dominated that fight. And just for example, Courtney Casey, maybe she's not an elite competitor, but she's done fairly okay recently in the UFC. She submitted Ronda Marcos and she defeated Jessica Aguilar. I mean, both are pretty high level fighters and high level athletes. Um, and Jessica Andrade, I mean, she looked great. Both, I think both women look good in this fight, but Jessica Andrade, I think, she put the pressure on Claudia Gedelia, and I think she used her strength well, and she imposed her will on Gedelia. And I thought it was a great fight overall, and it was definitely a fight of the night for me. Did we all hear the 10 third round? I did. Jeff? Jeff, are you there? Yes. That, yeah, I'm sorry. I was on mute for a second. That's all right. Did, did you also score that third round 10-8? Yeah, I scored a 10-8 as well. 
Yeah, so we're all unanimous on that then. Um, I, I, I think Rob basically hit the point home that there was really no effective resistance from Claudia in that round, let alone effective offense of her own. And I think not only in terms of just control, but the punishment that was levied out justifies a 10-8 for that. And I'm shocked that wasn't across the board. Yeah. I, I, that 30-27 really kind of made my – I got my eyebrows up like, really? Especially they were under the new criteria uh, for this event. So, uh, again, so only it, one that kind judge, of shocked only one, only one judge, it, it seems, scored it 30-27. One had it 30-25. And one had it um, 30-26. Yeah. It was only the one, but it was still kind of, again, it's just kind of like, really? It's a head scratcher. The problem is, the problem is judges don't want to hand out those 10-8s. And they don't, and they seldom want to hand out a legit 10-10 when I think 10-10 is sometimes the best choice. And I think. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that either. Yeah. Uh, I agree. With, I, think, I, I, think I generally thing, agree with Jeff's point that MMA could use more both ten eights and ten tens as a general rule. Yeah, I, I agree with you too, Jeff. I, I think the thing with the ten eight on, in that instance is a lot of times we see it that they don't want to award a ten eight in the first or second round of a three round fight to prevent the end result of a draw. It, it's one of those things where, and I think we probably all agree, especially in a fight like that, uh, scoring a ten eight third round wouldn't have altered the scoring in any way. So it's kind of one of those things where I don't really see why they wouldn't have done it other than just the lack of judging experience and understanding perhaps. All right. Um, last two things I want to say here, and then we'll this move on to the next fight. Most, most of the media scored this 29-27, which is mind-blowing yeah. to me. So. And that's what I, I, I think. The, I, what, I did too. I think the media got it right for once. What round did you give it to uh, uh, to Gedelia or, or whatever? First. The first. I gave Claudia the first. I felt that the work she did in the uh, the first three minutes was not negated by Jessica's winning the okay. last the second there the two minutes after that. Okay, but if you give her if you give her the first, and then and then you give her the second and the third and the third of ten eight. That's how you get twenty nine twenty seven. Okay. Don't you think? But don't you think another one of those rounds could have been ten eight? The second absolutely could think, have been a ten eight for Jessica as well. I didn't. I didn't at the time. I think. I think there's an argument for it. Without, I don't. I don't think it's it's so controversial if you scored that ten eight. Um, I definitely though think the third round was absolutely a ten eight. And if you're only awarding one of those rounds ten eight, in that mindset that the judges have, I think the third round is the one you give it to. Is it a problem that none of the judges gave a single round to Gedelia then? Yes, I think Moderately. so. I understand the first round is subjective, but I, I think I think personally that the first round, a lot of effective striking was done by Claudia, and the damage dealt was more by Claudia. Um, I think Andrade was more aggressive for the fourth minute of the round and really didn't connect with anything very solidly till the last minute when she had Gedelia on her back. And even then, I think Claudia really had done a lot of damage earlier. She did bust up Andrade's face so that she had the strikes to prove it. Um, but, but, you know, Andrade closed the round stronger. And unfortunately, a lot of times, judges have a short-term memory. Yeah, that, that's, that's the biggest thing is, you know, when people talk about stealing rounds, they always – that always comes up at the end of a round, not at the beginning, because that's the last thing judges see. So – 
I can see why that particular, again, how they might have arrived at it. It's not what I believe to be accurate, but it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, okay, again, the, I had two things I wanted to say, and then we're going to move on. One, I have to quote Jack Slack about this because I thought it was funny. He said, uh, it's always a mute. Watching Jessica Andrade lean straight back to avoid punches when she's like 5-1 is just really weird. It's just a weird defensive choice, considering it'd be so easy for her to get under them. Um, Also, I saw this on Twitter a little bit. There were people asking, where was this Jessica Andrade when she fought Ioana? Pretty sure it's the same. Uh, Uh, Yeah, it is. I, I was... And to me, it was more shocking that people don't like there's such a general lack of understanding about why Joanna was so successful against Andrade. It's it, again, it was really baffling to me that like. You, you know what the funny part about that is, though? Yeah, go ahead. If you look at if you look at when Claudia had most of her success in the fight in that first round, it was emulating the style that Joanna had so much success with keeping yeah. her on the outside, cutting angles, and beating her up. When she abandoned that style and went back to more standard Claudia style of trying to grapple and pressure, that's when Jessica had success because she didn't have those same obstacles in her way. Yeah. Again, yeah, like, please, guys, watch what you want. Watch Joanna versus Andrade again and look at why Joanna is successful. And then you'll understand why Jessica struggled so much in that fight and not so much in this one it after the first like three and a half minutes all right next up oh this was sad dong young kim maestro uh defeated takanori gomi via tko at one minute and 30 seconds of the first round all right <sighs> look guys gomi was shot as a fighter when the ufc signed him that he hung around this long is nothing short of perplexing he has lost his last five fights, and he has been stopped in the first round of all of them. Gomi needs to have the same talk that needs to be had with BJ Penn. There's a serious ethical question that has to arise around this guy and booking him to fight. Um, there's not a single UF, There's not a single lightweight in the UFC I would pick him to beat. There's not a single lightweight in Bellator off the top of my head that I would pick him to beat. And, and what's the third promotion? Not PL, not PFL, but um, the Russian one. M1? Uh, no, no, ACB. ACB is actually a really good promotion. Uh, they're the one I'm thinking of. And of the lightweights I know in ACB, I don't think I'd pick him to beat any of them. This is, again, this is just sad. This is BJ Penn levels of sad. Um, it's it's really just, again, like I don't want to see Gomi fight anymore. He's just there to get punched and collect a paycheck, and that's not safe. Uh, Jeff, again, anything here? Do you have anything for this one? I mean... I- I don't think it was necessary for Ben Falk to write a think piece and shame fans for saying the fans that want Gomi to retire is for our benefit and not his. 
No, Ben. I think we want to want Gomi to retire right now for his own benefit and not for our own and not for our perception of Gomi or, or what you think our perception of Gomi is because, yes, his rise to stardom was amazing and uh, his run in Pride FC and, you know, the old fireball kid, he was one of my favorite fighters to watch in Pride. When he won um, one of his fights in Pride, uh, and yet Boston was saying, everything you ever want to know about mixed martial arts, you see it right there. And that was one of, like, my favorite moments in MMA ever. But when I see him now, it's not I, – I, I worry for his safety and his long-term future. And you don't need to write an essay about why we're being selfish for wanting him to retire. There's nothing selfish about wanting – uh, a 39-year-old man who's, who's lost five fights in a row, been knocked out in four of those five fights, not want to get this much damage anymore when there's really no point. Other than that, you know, maybe he's trying to make a living, and I don't know if he's broke or not or, or if he hasn't invested his money well. I have no idea. But at this point, I just I don't want to see him continue like this. Um, and, I don't, and I don't think it's for the fans who genuinely are worried for his well-being, I don't think it's right to try and shame them or try to chide them for maybe wanting Gomi to retire. And I don't think it's, it's selfish at all that Gomi's ruining our perception of him or that we used to have of him. And quite frankly, I think to, to write something like that is it's foolish. All right, Pat, should Gomi hang it up? I mean, he should have like two years ago, but I mean, he got knocked out by Dung Yun Kim in 90 seconds. Come on. Yeah, he should hang it up. When you're when you're at a point when you're no longer competitive, uh, you should at, at a high level you shouldn't be in the UFC. When you're at a point when you're no longer competitive against mediocre fighters, you're at the point where it's time for you to step back and help train the next generation of fighters or work a corner or help build a gym and earn some strikes that way. There's no reason for you to still be fighting uh, other than you're going to continue to hurt yourself. It would be one thing if Gomi was still good enough to beat, you know, a certain level of fighter, but he's shown no indication of that. So for his own health, should he retire? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, Next up. Your feel-good moment of the night. Uh, Gukan Saki defeated Henrique Da Silva via knockout at 4.45 of the first round. Uh, this was a... This was a... This is weird because it was somewhat back and forth, which it shouldn't have been, but it kind of was. Uh, I said last week that I thought Da Silva was just blowing smoke uh, I and, you know, saying he was going to stand and fight Saki and, uh, you know, that he, because that's just stupid. I thought better of Enrique de Silva's ability to make decisions as it pertains to fighting than he deserves, apparently, because, yeah, he decided for the first, like, three and a half minutes to stand and trade with a world-class kickboxer. Um, Matsaki tore his face to pieces over those first, like, three and a half minutes. His left hand is extremely educated. He goes upstairs and downstairs, 
mixes in uppercuts and hooks. He does a lot of really good work with his left hand. He used his right well. He switches stances. He landed a few leg kicks, and he, he only landed like two, and De Silva visibly was like messed up by that second one, and he didn't go back to it, but two more Silva of those, and he might not have been able to walk. Silva did damage on him, though, during that fight. He did. He did. After, again, there there came a point when he was trying to, you know, get takedowns from forced clinch, like bad knee taps. And I want to credit Saki for being ready for that. Uh, there's a lot of high-level strikers who come into MMA and just neglect the basics of defending takedowns or fighting off clinches against the fence. And, of course, the same is there's a lot of grapplers who come in without the foggiest idea of how to properly defend themselves from getting punched in the face. But Saki worked with a lot of Turkish, apparently like national Turkish wrestlers. And if you know anything about international wrestling, he's got some pretty, there's a history there. There's some really good Turkish wrestlers. And he, he didn't get taken down. And I, I do want to credit him for that. Then he got tired. Not because he's, you know, fat and out of shape, but, and he mentioned this after the fact, the, both the style where there's a lot of heavy clinching that goes on and the pacing for fighting five rounds as opposed to three is different. And he wasn't quite ready for it. De Silva was able to start landing on him. He got into the clinch and he landed some really good elbows, landed a couple of knee. Again, De Silva, after that first, like three and a half minutes of getting bludgeoned, Saki slowed down and De Silva tried to press the action. Got him against the fence, landed a couple of elbows, landed a knee strike, and then for some reason, I'll give him a pass as far as fight IQ in this instance because he'd been hitting the head so much. He'd have been dropped at least (laughs) once. But you're having success in prolonged clinch battles with a guy who's clearly not quite used to fighting in that space for a long period of time. And after landing that knee, he backs out punching range and gets into what would normally be a 50-50 brawl, where they're both just kind of throwing hooks at each other. 50-50 brawling positions like that are only 50-50 if you're as good in that position as the other guy. And there's not a lot of guys in the UFC or in all of MMA who in that position are actually the the metaphorical 50-50 with Gok and Saki. Saki landed a Slightly straighter right than a left hook. De Silva dropped to his back. Uh, it was done. It, as someone who watched a non-trivial amount of, uh, you know, Saki's kickboxing bouts, this was a lot of fun. He mentioned afterwards that he's aware of the issues he had with his, you know, pacing with his conditioning, you know, getting used to the heavy grappling rather than the, you know, the K1 clinch fighting, which is very limited. But. You know, light heavyweight kind of sucks. They could use all the help they can get, and if he actually commits himself to, you know, improving those areas, he's at least going to be good for fights. He might even find himself in the top 15, mostly because the division is a wasteland. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you this time. Uh, what'd you think about this? Again, we got a really... I thought it was a fun fight. It was... Uh... It, it was back and forth. It had a violent knockout finish. I didn't have a problem with the stoppage just because it looked like when De Silva ate that punch, 
whether it was a split second or not, it looked like his lights went out, and maybe he fell into kind of like a defensive position. But when someone gets hit like that and you can see it, I don't really think it's a wrong thing to stop the fight. And I think it's always better to stop a fight too early than too late. And some people on Facebook were like, well, maybe there should have been a few more parting shots. Well, those parting shots, I don't, why, why allow that if it's really not necessary? And I, I just don't think it was a bad stoppage at all. I think we do need to pump the brakes a little bit uh, for Gokhan Saki. I mean, I know he's a world-class elite kickboxer, but he's only one and one in MMA. And this was only his second fight, his first fight in the UFC. And he was fighting Enrique De Silva, who was 0-3 uh, going into this fight in the octagon, and I think two and three in the UFC overall. Now he's two and four. So it wasn't like he was. I mean, I think it was a good first fight for him, for a guy that has that much kickboxing experience, for him to be making the transition to the UFC. And now I think some of what the mistakes Saki made were because uh, were because of ring rust and because he hadn't fought in a while. I think. When was his last fight? Like almost two years ago, or, two and or a something. Half, I think. So he he. So I, I'm sure some of these things uh, are improvements he'll make in the gym over time. And uh, I think yes, light heavyweight can definitely use something like him, someone like him. At the same time, I saw him making a lot of mistakes. He looked very flat-footed. His movement didn't look great, and he looked like he was very tired and very gassed pretty quickly into the first round. He was, not to mention, he, um, De Silva got through a lot of his defense and was making him eat a lot of uh, Muay Thai-style knee strikes in the tie clinch, and uh, his hands were down. His hands were completely down uh, by the time the fight was finished, and it looked like he was tired to me. He was just, he was just, uh, he made it a brawl, but the brawl favored him, and he was able to come out with it. Uh, with the win. Now, I mean, a lot of guys, a lot of people criticize fights getting sloppy, and this did start to look like a sloppy fight for the end. An entertaining fight, yes, but I'd still say it was pretty sloppy, even though Saki pulled off an amazing knockout victory. Oh, yeah. It, it, it definitely got there at the end. Again, he, he gasped pretty visibly at about the four-minute mark. All right, Pat, uh, De Silva's terrible fight IQ, uh, game planning, and uh, you know, Gokin Saki getting his first ever MMA win. Uh, how was this for you? Uh, this was about what it should have been. Uh, Enrique De Silva is not very good. Uh, Gohan Saki is a world-class kickboxer with a lot of history. Um, in one respect, he trained correct and that he trained a heavy 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 amount of takedown defense uh because he knows that largely if he can keep a fight standing he's probably going to have an advantage if not win um and this was a case where that was there certain things clearly got to him i think the pacing of an mma round is very different for him and it's going to take at least another two three fights to really fully encompass that into his game and understand where he's got to utilize certain things, where he needs to hold back, where he needs to take the lead, and how he needs to pace himself to last through a full fight, um, especially dealing with somebody who's going to be
be used to this and try to put him on his back or put him against the cage or where we saw De Silva have his best success against him in a clinch where you can do a lot more in a clinch in a cage in an MMA fight than you can in a K1 or kickboxing rules bout. Uh, and Saki found that out the hard way. Uh, he absorbed some very clean, strong elbows right prior to the finish of this fight. However, his kickboxing career has kind of enabled him to take blows like that and not wilt immediately or be very, very stunned by them. He clearly was bothered by them, backed up while tired, utilized his better knowledge of punching range, and was able to catch De Silva with those big hooks and put him out. Um, I definitely think there's a, a, a an upper limit to what he can do just based on his striking alone, based on how poor light heavyweight is, it could conceivably be very easy for him to reach the top five. Um, but that being said, he's still got a lot of work to do, but I think there's a good chance he can do it. Uh, uh, Jeff brought up the finish. Uh, my two cents. I had no problem with it. Um, not just because his lights went out for a second when he got knocked down, but also because of the sheer volume of punishment he'd already he'd already been knocked down once. His face was a busted mess. Like, I'm okay with between again his lights going out for a second, the way he fell, coupled with the again the amount of damage that he'd already absorbed. I was 100% okay with the stoppage. Uh, and yeah, so again, yes, my thoughts there. Um, okay, next up. Teruto Ishihara defeated Rolando D via unanimous decision. There are some odd scores here. Brace yourself. 28-27, <laughs> and 29-27. Might be asking yourself, how did we arrive at 28-27? I believe I had this 28-27. How did you arrive at that? Well, Ishihara got a 10-8 in the first. Uh, I think universally. He avoided a high kick. D spun all the way around and didn't get his hands back into position to block. Ishihara cracked him with a left that dropped him. Got on top and just spent the rest of the round elbowing him in the head. Uh, D somehow recovered. Won the second round. And was winning the third round. Up until a couple of groin strikes. And I think Ishihara lucked into those. I don't mean he tried to get hit in the, you know, groin that hard. But I think they allow, I think the point deduction after the second one, which was justified, I have no problem with that point, you know, going away from D. But if he didn't get that, this is a draw. Because D won the, I had D winning the third, and then after the point deduction, it was 9-9. This, I think Ishihara kind of lucked into that. Because he had a great first round and then proceeded to drop the next two pretty, pretty clearly. Um, this sucks for D because a a really gutsy performance from him is going to be marred by the fact that he couldn't control his weapons. Uh, this was again, this was just kind of a fight. I was really surprised that Ishihara never really put together a solid takedown attempt after he was so much better on top in the first round. I mean, I get that you don't want to be, you know, blindly, you know, desperately shooting. You don't want to be that predictable, but 
I think every takedown attempt he had, it was one and done. He tried, and then when it stalled out on the clinch, he didn't really fight to switch. He didn't switch it up. He didn't transition from a single to a double. He didn't go for a body lock. He didn't go for a trip. It was, I am trying this, and if this doesn't work, once they hit the fence and stalled out, D was constantly able to push free and then go back to, you know, fighting at distance. Uh, not a bad fight, but uh, again, I I think Ishihara kind of lucked into actually winning. Uh, Pat, I'll stick with you for a second because there was a point deduction, which, I mean, maybe MMA could use more of considering the number of fouls that just kind of occur. Uh, what did you feel about this? It was just sort of a weird reversal of fortunes um, in almost an unexplainable way. Uh, Ishihara really came out strong in the first round and aggressively. D was constantly caught by these, you know, strikes at odd angles and Ishihara clearly pushing him and making him uncomfortable. Well, D rebounded in a really strong way in the second round, had a great round, had the incidental, you know, groin strike, which, okay, accidents happen. It'll be what it'll be. And in the third round, I thought he really was starting to build on what he had done effectively. And all of a sudden, here we go again, another groin strike. And I don't think it was intentional. I don't think that Ishihara was milking it. I think he got hit. I think it was clear he got hit. And he had to, you know, well, I'm talking just about the first time. The And... He didn't milk it. He took his time. He got back in the fight. Now, generally at that point, when a fighter has had a point deducted for a foul, particularly from a low blow, his corner will advise him, even before a fight, that if this is something that you run into, you need to stop doing it or you will cost yourself the fight. And unfortunately, that was the case. Because I think D was really building momentum and figured Ishihara out largely and was on his way to locking up the fight. And then he got stupid. Yeah. Um, again, there was a minor low blow in the second that was purely accidental. It was an inside leg kick that Ishihara kind of moved into. I don't even think there was time called. He kind of, both fighters acknowledged it, but Ishihara kind of waved the ref off. He got need in the third, and then exiting a punching exchange, D got stupid with another inside leg kick that went right into the groin. I mean, there was no ambiguity here. <laughs> um, again, just a really, really just stupid mistake that cost D the fight. I mean, again, it was probably going to wind up a draw. Inter- but he wound interesting up losing. Interesting side note. D is the son of Rolando Navret, which was very briefly referenced by Todd Grisham on commentary. Rolando Navret was a junior lightweight champion in boxing in the 1980s, had some very notable fights, was the first really popular Filipino fighter in decades. Uh, well, D never met his father because his father had, fought, had a, I believe it stands as 11 different children with seven different women uh, at this point in time anyway. And Navret basically mismanaged all of his money, so left his, you know, baby mamas and kids destitute and worked as a fisherman earning $16 a day after he had retired. All right. Nice bit of history there. All right, Jeff, any thoughts on this one? Uh, be it the point deduction, whether it was, you know, how you feel about that, the action, so on and so forth? Neither of these guys 
are UFC caliber fighters and neither of them belong in the UFC. And I think a fight like this is systematic of having a few too many fights and a few too many fighters. Uh, I'm not saying ridiculously scale everything back, but I think some scaling back and some house cleaning definitely needs to happen, especially with two fighters like this. And I'm just saying combine this card with the Rockhold versus Branch card, and I think then you have a much more solid fight night card overall. I agree with you, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, I said Ishihara should have been cut when he lost to Artem Lobov, as should everyone who loses to Artem Lobov. He didn't just use, lose to uh, Artem Lobov. He lost to Gray Maynard at, at Featherweight. Come on. That's true. Yeah, he did lose to Lobov and then Maynard back-to-back. Yeah. And, and, and look, not that I hate Gray Maynard or anything. He lost to Gray Maynard in 2017. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, it was. That's very different than losing to Gray Maynard in, you know, 2010, 2011. And that's probably all we need to say about that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I I wouldn't be broken up if either, if both these guys got just some more learning experience before potentially coming back. All right, and kicking off the main card, Juicier Formiga defeated Uka Sasaki via rear naked choke four minutes and 30 seconds into the first round. Uh, I actually like, I was really impressed with Formiga's grip adjustments as he was going for the choke. Uh, he got Sasaki down, which is not terribly surprising. Sasaki has good takedown defense, but he's a better scrambler. And Formiga denied him the opportunity to utilize that skill set. Formiga passed him out, got the back, started going for the choke, and a lot of times you see guys uh, struggle to finish the rear naked choke because the their opponent knows how to hand fight, and they're struggling to really you know, get the proper grips going. He started out going for the kind of basic figure four grip, and then anytime somebody does that, all you have to do is control one of their arms, pull it off, and they don't actually have enough force to really choke you. It's not pleasant, but they're not going to like render you unconscious. As he was pulling the hand down, Formiga switched to a, uh, a gable grip, palm to palm, and tried to crank it that way. And uh, Sasaki kept hand fighting. He rolled, and as he rolled, um, Formiga did this really sneaky thing where he kind of let go of the palm to palm grip for a second to finish the roll. And then before Sasaki could re-grip, he went into a really extreme variation of the, the arm figure four, which is more of an X, really. Um, you have the choking hand on your own bicep, and then your free hand, in this case, I believe, was Formiga's uh, left. Instead of going straight back, again, in the kind of typical figure four that we think of, uh, the most mechanically sound thing to do is actually angle that uh, the left arm behind your opponent's head, and it vastly increases the... It's mechanically the force of the choke. So it was some really nice grip adjustment by Formiga to actually get the finish here. Uh, that's his first finish in the UFC. So, you know, good for Formiga, who's still a very second. good flyweight. Oh, second. Who did he finish? Who else did he finish? Uh, Jorgensen in 2014. Okay, that would be why I forgot about it. Um, but <laughs> again, I mean, Formiga brought up and has brought up in the past that if his fight with Ray Borg is scored in his favor, and it could have been. It was a very close fight. He'd be the one who would have, and bear in mind, I think Formiga would have actually made weight, so he would have fought DJ already. 
and lost, but he would have fought for the belt. Uh, so, you know, good for him. Uh, good win over, uh, you know, and Sasaki's got some, there's some skills there. He just needs a lot of refinement. Uh, Jeff, I'll stick with you for this one. Um, any thoughts on this one? Uh, you know, just uh, the fight in general? I thought it was a good fight for Formiga. It was a good showcase for him. Uh, uh, it was an impressive finish. I think the mark against Formiga is that he he's a pretty decent high-level flyweight fighter, and when he came into the UFC, he was one of the top-ranked flyweights, uh, and he had a pretty good record. But he's always sort of failed to beat those higher uh, upper echelon fighters, even in the, even in a division like flyweight in the UFC. And he picked up a good win here, but he beat a guy who was very beatable and was a guy he could beat and finish. And I think the other mark against him is that his other fights and performances in, in the UFC tend to be very uneventful, boring decisions where not a lot, uh, a whole lot happens. So. I think that's why he hasn't been able to fight for the belt yet. And uh, I think even in the fight with uh, Ray Borg was a fight where Borg was able to make weight. But granted, um, I don't even want to defend Ray Borg. And I don't even know why I said that. But, yeah, he, it, it, was a dec- it was a decent performance for Formiga. Uh, Pat, um, Jussier Formiga, for the record, his only losses in the UFC are to John Dodson, Joseph Benavidez, and I believe Ray Borg. I think those are his only UFC losses. Henry Cejudo. Oh, Cejudo as well. Another split decision, yeah. So he's lost when he's fought you know, the very best. Uh, was this a step forward for him and potentially, I mean, given that DJ has laid waste to the, most of the division, uh, was this a, you know, a step forward for him towards potentially fighting for the belt at some point? I mean, anytime you win a fight is a step forward. Was it a significant step forward to me? No. I think he fought a guy he was supposed to beat. He did that. He showed uh, a strong grappling game in that he fought a guy in Sasaki who, as you pointed out, not necessarily great at stopping takedowns, but great at scrambling out of trouble. And Formiga never allowed him to do that. And that itself is is a good feat to accomplish. However, this wasn't an opponent who was highly touted. He didn't show anything different that would support the argument that he stands a better chance of beating a Cejudo, a Benavidez, a DJ, or even a Ray Borg at this point. All right. That was the... This fight is not going to shatter the gatekeeper perception of Formiga. Not at all. That's very true. All right. That was the main card. As for the prelims, a couple of decent fights here, actually. Kieda Nakamura defeated Alex Morono via split decision, 229-28 for Nakamura, 129-28 for Morono. You can take the O off of Morono's last name. Morono bothers me in the sense that there's a lot good to his game. He has some really impressive footwork and movement. His cage cutting is really good, but he struggles to actually make offense come off of it. He shows a lot, but he doesn't score a lot. Uh, and it's frustrating because there's a, again, there's a foundation of movement that he possesses that so many other guys and girls don't have. But if, you know, if he had one eighth of their actual striking ability, he'd be a legitimate threat. As it stands, not so much. 
Uh, Suri Kondu defeated Chen Mi Jian via split decision. 128-29 for Jian, 230-27 for Kondo. I believe I was 29-28 for Kondo here. Um, not a bad fight. I think I think Jian wound up in the UFC way too early. She was like 19 when they signed her. Only five and zero. There's some good al- There's some really solid elements to her game, but there's a lot. Again, there's stuff that needs to be added to it, and there's a lot of experience that needs to be gained. Uh, you know, Kondo was also like five and zero coming into this, whereas Gian was five and one. I think the primary difference in the experience is both Kondo's older and has a kickboxing background as well. So there's again, there's just experience there that Gian still needs to get, and I'm not sure the UFC is the best place to gain experience. Uh, Shinso Anzai defeated Luke Jamo via unanimous decision, 229-28, 130-27. Jamo is way too passive. He's got power. He's got a decent striking technique. Uh, at least when he chooses to use it, he gets into wild hooks too often. But he is way too content to just let things happen, and Anzai was constantly making things happen. And kicking everything off, Daichi Abe defeated Hyungyu Lim via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. This was a good fight. Abe took the first, Lim made adjustments and took the second. Lim was winning the third until, like, the very end of the round, like four minutes and 45 seconds, maybe even you know less time than that, you know, had elapsed, or was left, excuse me. Abe baited him into showing a right and he didn't get his hands back to defend in time. Abe dropped him with a right that broke his nose and won the one in the round. Uh, if, if there was one fight on the prelims that you didn't see that I could recommend, it would actually be this one. Um, Abe and Lim had some really fun exchanges. They had some good adjustments that were made by each guy, you know, Abe in the beginning winning a lot, and then Lim started fainting and faking more, drawing out his counters and then subsequently countering them. And then in the third, Abe finally getting a read on Lim's, at, Lim's attempted counters, getting him to show that and then capitalizing on a small opening to win him the fight. So that's the one I would say, you know, again, if you didn't see it, that one's worth watching. Uh, all right, Pat, I'll stick with you. Anything you want to bring up? Any burning desires? I know you're a big fan of Siri. Yeah, I was I was surprised the condo fight went to a split decision. I didn't see two rounds that could be argued against her, um, personally. Uh, I know that, again, there's the talk of aggression, meaningless aggression equals points, uh, but I didn't see where it was effective in this fight for her. Uh, that's just me. I thought Kondo pretty clearly won two rounds versus the one she lost. Uh, other than that, um, nothing really spectacular other than take the all off of Morono's last name. All right, Jeff, uh, burning desires from that group of prelims. Do you have any? Nope. All righty. Thanks to everyone who followed along. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thanks to everyone who followed along with fight night One Seventeen. Uh, much appreciated. There is no event this coming Saturday. Uh, I get a whole weekend off. I am so happy. Um, but UFC 216 is coming up on the 7th. I know we're going to do a full preview of that next week. I don't want us to, you know, give the whole thing away. Um, but just real briefly, 
outside, let me phrase this. Outside of the two, the top two fights, the Ferguson Lee and Demetrius Johnson versus Ray Borg fights. Uh, Jeff, any other fights on that card you're looking, uh, you kind of want to highlight here before we get into uh, you know, news that we want to talk about from the last week? Uh, Paige Van Zandt uh, versus uh, Jessica I. Paige Van Zandt is moving up to flyweight. Uh, Verdum is fighting Derek Lewis. And uh, Dariush versus Evan Dunham is a great fight for lightweight as well. So good fu- there are some good fights up and down. Uh, Bobby Green versus Lando Venata is a fun fight too. King Bobby uh, Pat- is back in action, folks. Uh, yeah, personally, um, Jeff mentioned Dariush and Dunham. To me, there's two fights on this on the prelims that I get why they're not on the main card in terms of name value, but. One of them, you, you put Tom Duke and Juan in the main event of the prelims, which is a good spot for him. And I'm actually kind of high on Duke and Juan. But for some reason, you have one of the better up-and-coming flyweights, the former World Series of Fighting flyweight champion, undefeated at 14-0, and 0, uh, Magomed Bibluadov, who is on fight pass again. If you're trying to build this division, guys... You got to give the up and comers a platform outside of Fight Pass. Uh, again, Bibble out of. Uh, I also won the ACB Bantamweight. Was it title or it says Grand Prix? So he won a major tournament. He's one of the flyweight up and comers, and he's fighting John Moraga. And for some reason, they're on Fight Pass. It's, again, some of this is just kind of backwards to me, like. Some of these guys, someone like Bibluadov needs a big, needs a bigger stage if you're going to build him up. So, all right. Anyway, Jeff, uh, any news items you want to touch on from the last week? Um, there seems to be news going around that Michael uh, might retire after he fights uh, George St. Pierre at UFC 217. Uh, this will be his second uh, middleweight title defense in. I would say, undeniably, Michael Bisping at this point has earned uh, unequivocally, no matter what you think about the UFC Hall of Fame, I would say unequivocally he is an MMA Hall of Famer. Um, He's the first ever British uh, UFC champion. He's been with the UFC over 10 years. Uh, He has 20 wins inside the UFC. And um, he's looking to fight George St. Pierre at Madison Square Garden. I think even if he were to retire after that fight, he's had a pretty fantastic career. Uh, I don't think he will retire, but uh, I guess we'll see. What do you guys think? I I think this one reeks of I want a cash grab after this because I feel like I can beat an oversized welterweight who hasn't fought in a couple years, but I don't think I can beat a Robert Whitaker. So I want a really big payout if I'm going to take that fight and take that L along with it. Yeah, I I brought this up in Fact or Fiction because it occurred to me as I was writing a a response. It was about uh, Luke Rockhold. Uh, Because Luke Rockhold, the question was, you know, how how close is Luke Rockhold to a title fight, you know, so on and so forth. And because there's an interim champion, it muddies the waters a little bit in terms of definitions. I wouldn't be, let me say this. I would not be surprised if Bisbing does retire after the GSP fight, especially if he loses. If he loses, he's done. 
But it just as an aside, as a very brief aside. He's not done if, if he loses. I think he's done if he loses. He is. You mean you think he'll retire if he loses? Yes. what you think. Okay. And I believe he's, set, he's intimated as much. I don't know how much you can trust him, but that is something he has brought up in the past. But it just occurred to me that even if Bisbing wins and let's say suffers another injury, which is, not un, which is far from you know, out of the question, and in order to keep the division busy, we get Robert Whitaker versus Luke Rockhold. Just, I bring this up just, not, because, not just because I'm really high on Bobby Knuckles, but think about the schedule of Robert Whitaker over the last 18 months, give or take. He beat Derek Brunson in the first round, knocked him out. He stopped Jacare in the second round with strikes. He beat Yoel Romero pretty clearly with a bum knee. If his fight after that is to defend the, the interim belt against Luke Rockhold, and let's say he, and again, he could very well win that fight. I think I'd, I'd probably pick him in all honesty. While Michael Bisbing dicked around with old man Hendo and a blown-up welterweight, Robert Whitaker will have beaten probably the next five best middleweights in the world. To me, that's relatively insane. That he has gone on that kind of a run and, and is still not fighting for the lineal belt. That that's insane to me. Uh, it's pretty clear Michael Bisping wants no part of him. Let's be real. Bisping wants a lot of money. He wants big money fights, and I get it. I'm more annoyed at the UFC for continuing to play into this, but that's that's another thing. Entirely. MMA is like the stock market. Bisping's stock is up, and Whitaker's stock is down. It's that simple. It's true. And it it sucks because, again, Whitaker's on – I think Whitaker's the best middleweight in the world by a non-trivial margin. (laughs) But, again, such is life. You know, they were were both injured at the right time to set up the timing for GSP Bisming to actually happen. Does anyone want to pay to see Woodley versus GSP other than maybe hopefully GSP would, would end Woodley's reign of terror? I don't think Woodley's mother would pay to see that fight. No, she'd be caught tickets look, right behind commentary, and I'd have to listen to her yell all night. Look, I don't like the fight. I don't like. I didn't like Mayweather versus McGregor, but it's happening. No, it is. It is what it is. It's a cash grab, and everybody knows it, it. And that's what it is. But if anyone deserves that, doesn't my thing arguably? Ah, uh, no. I don't think anyone deserves it. In all honesty, but. Yeah, that's I don't. I, I, I would agree with that sentiment. That's that is uniquely my perspective, and to people who feel differently, I'm not saying you're wrong. Get that out there. Fair enough. I do um, agree with you about Bisbing's legacy in the UFC, though. He has been a in the trenches. I, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. He told it. He told, he told Ariel Hawani, "I'm going to beat George, and I'll retire as champion, maybe." I haven't made my mind up on that yet. It depends. Is he is he posturing here, or do you think he's sincere about that? Eh, six of one, half dozen of the other. 
I think he's posturing a little bit to get more notoriety around the fight. I also think that at his age with his physical condition, if he wins and decides I'm just done being hit in the head for a living, I that's entirely feasible as well. I I don't think he's made his mind up. I think he's going to wait and see how the fight plays out and, you know, which way the wind is blowing and what other kind of fights he could angle for uh, after this one ends. But again, that's just me. Okay. Another fight that's uh, been lined up is um, Matt Brown is going to fight uh, another over the health fighter, Diego uh, Sanchez at the UFC fight night card in uh, Norfolk. Um, and Matt Brown has said he plans on retiring after this fight with Sanchez. Um, I don't know. Is this a welterweight, Jeff? I believe it. I believe it will be at welterweight. I, I mean, I can't see any reason why. Di- I, I don't Diego's think Brown can make lightweight. Yeah. Uh, so this is the Poirier versus Pettis card in um, coming up uh, in November. Um, Matt Brown. I don't know if he'd, he'd be my favorite fighter, but I've, I've generally always enjoyed him fighting in the UFC. I will be sad to see him go. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I don't think this is really the wrong move for him, but uh, I hope he can end his career on a high note with this fight. And since he's fighting Diego Sanchez, I think there's a pretty good chance of that, but I just yeah. hope he doesn't go out there to have like a, a three-round brawl with Diego and we get one of those crazy – stupid judges decisions as we've seen in the past with some of Diego's fights. So, um, yeah, I think we're all Matt Brown fans. I think the guy was just consistent entertainment, no matter who he fought, he always fought his heart out, even if it wasn't in his best interest, how he went about it. And he had some great memorable fights, the fight with Steven Thompson, the fight with Jordan mean, uh, those are just my two favorites off the top of my head involving, there's so many more. Eric Silva yeah, was a good uh, one. His, that his was fight a good with one Robbie too. Waller was a lot of fun. He went on a pretty yeah, spectacular yeah, I mean, run. He was, I would say he was, he was legitimately a, he was, in the top five at one point. I don't know that he was top five, but I'll tell you for, for a good while, I would say he was the most consistently exciting fighter in the UFC in terms of the action of his fights, whether he won or lost. And there's a special place for guys like that in, in the MMA history books. And you know what? I, I just hope for his sake he gets to go out with a win. I, I hope he finishes the fight because that's the only way he's guaranteed to win when there are judges and Diego Sanchez involved. But I, I think he can do it. I hope he does it. He deserves to go out with a big win. Uh, he's given us so much entertainment pound for pound, maybe more so than any other fighter over the years. So salute to you, Matt Brown. Yeah, as a fan uh, of violence, Matt Brown's loss is a is a deep one that will be felt. Again, you, you guys brought up some great fights. Uh, the Robbie Lawler fight was good. Uh, his fight with Donald Cerrone was pretty darn entertaining. Um, oh, all right, right. I, I fully expect Matt Brown to beat Diego Sanchez because I fully expect Diego Sanchez to continue being Diego Sanchez at this point. Uh, another good fight that got announced, uh, Francisco Trinaldo versus Jim Miller at UFC in Sao Paulo, Brazil. That's the Brunson versus Machida card, so Machida is finally coming off the tension. 
I like that fight a lot, and I think Ronaldo's very underrated. I think that's a good fight for both guys. I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. I'm always down to watch Jim Miller fight, even though he's pretty clearly past his best. I think he's still got a lot to offer. And Trinaldo's improbable run a few years ago was really something interesting to watch. So, uh, that's not a bad fight. Um, Carlos Condit is saying he wants to fight again. Um, I don't know if he's really got the itch. Or <laughs> he brought up, funny. like, uh, Mike Perry, didn't he? Uh, I think he did. And he's tweeting Sean Shelby saying, um... December or January. I'm a little conflicted about this just because it seemed like Carlos Condit was ready to hang it up, and I'm just not sure what his situation is now. But, I mean, I love Carlos Condit, and I love his fights and performances, but uh, I hope his head is in the right place if he wants to, you know, make a comeback or a return. Even then, uh, yeah. I, even then, if he... Even then, if he does fight again, I don't know if I don't think a fight with Mike Perry would be the best idea. I'd be okay with it just because, again, violence, which I am a fan of. Um, if Condit's got his head right, you know, after the you know the back-to-back losses he suffered, I I hope he does, and I look forward to his fights. I always have. Uh, he, again, he's another action fighter that. I don't. I can't remember a bad Carlos Condit fight. And considering some of the guys he's fought, that's something that that actually says something. Pat, you got any thoughts on Condit potentially coming back? Uh, another guy who was perennially just very entertaining and action-packed, but was also one of those guys who could consistently do so at an elite at an elite level, which is very rare. Um, I'm I'm on board with Jeff's thought process that the want for Carlos to do it has to be there, and I think it's questionable right now if there really is that want in him. He's openly pleading, you know, book me, Sean Shelby, please. I'll fight. Book me with Mike Perry. Um, but, you know, based on what we last saw of him and where he was at mentally, I think there's a lot of questions, and I don't know that a fight with Mike Perry is the best fight for somebody who was questioning where they were at in terms of their career not all that long ago because Perry's going to get up in his face and Perry's going to challenge him. And those are often the fights that break you if you're not a hundred percent committed to them, but we're going to have to see where that one goes as it happens. Alrighty. Anything else, Jeff? Uh, another fight that got added to that card is John Lineker versus uh, Marlon Vera. I'm assuming that's Ooh. at um, Bantamweight. <laughs> Good fight. Another good fight for that card. Um, that's that's spicy. That that's, yeah, that's a spicy a good, fight. I like that. That's a good, um, let's see. Um, oh, another one for the for that uh, for the Norfolk card with uh, Matt Brown versus Sanchez, and Poirier versus Pettis is um, or two more actually. Super Stage Stage Northcutt is coming back. He's fighting uh, Michelle Quinones uh, and uh, Rafael Asensio. It's fighting Matthew Lopez on that card. So those are two more fights added to the Norfolk card. That's a pretty um, solid fight, Mike. I mean, there's nothing you know, that's going to jump out to the casual fans outside of maybe Pettis, possibly Sanchez, but that's that's a really solid free TV card, actually. I agree. 
Um, so Steve Miocic, he was on the MMA hour last week and he says he's uh he says things are looking good with the UFC to possibly fight in December or January. So I think the problem is if he were to fight and defend the title, you know, looking to break the heavyweight title defense record uh, of two and two. looking to become <laughs> <laughs> looking to become the greatest UFC heavyweight fighter ever. Um, Cain Velasquez is still having back injury issues. Does the UFC just go ahead and book uh, Francis Ngannou versus Stipe Miocic, or is that wait like who do you have Stipe fight right now? If he does fight in December or January, um, you'd have a pretty you could have a very quick turnaround for the winner of Lewis versus Verdum, assuming Overeem's unavailable. I mean, I know he just beat Overeem, but that's pretty much it <laughs> as far as contenders. So if it's not again, if it's not Overeem. If it's not the winner yeah, of this is Mark Hunt, and Mark Hunt, I think he has a fight coming up. Yeah, he does. Mark Hunt is scheduled. I forget against two, but I know he's scheduled. This is the fight you bring back Shane Carwin for. <laughs> this is uh, that fight. Carwin <laughs> signed with another promotion, or yeah, he, he, he signed with Bellator. Is he is he ever going to fight for them even? One would they, they already had a fight scheduled, and it was already canceled due to injury on his part during training. Look, what about, guys, what I about like... uh, the fight they ever got with Roy Nelson for the Ultimate Fighter? I think they want to build to that. I like Shane Carwin. That gave us a lot of great moments, especially for heavyweight fighters. I said this when he retired the first time. This is a guy who had a lot of, you know, wrestling abuse on his body. He played football and he had a bunch of serious back injuries. Back injuries are the worst because they seem to never really heal. There is all, they are always cropping back up. I, uh, to answer your question, Nganu actually seems like the most likely candidate, again, unless one of the guys from, the first the first weekend of October does a really fast turnaround. I literally can't think of anyone else. I mean, I could see Verdum submitting Derek Lewis fairly quickly, um, but it would have to, you know, be a real quick one. Because even if Derek Lewis doesn't hit him off, and Derek Lewis hits very hard, and you're likely to deal with something that's not going to let you have a quick turnaround after that. Uh, but, you know, this is going to be one of those interesting times where it's, well, how the heck do you book this? Do you do you ask Daniel Cormier to move up to heavyweight? Do you and do a light heavyweight versus heavyweight champion fight for a super fight where it's legitimate and Cormier does stand a chance to win it? Do you bring up I, uh, somebody? I actually don't give Cormier much of a chance against Stipe. <laughs> no, I do. I give Cormier a chance matchup. against any heavyweight. Just the, it's not that Cormier is bad. It's just that matchup. Stipe knows how to wrestle. Stipe punches very straight. He punches very hard. And he's not going to get I mean, sucked into prolong, you know, the prolonged wrestling battles that Cormier uses to drown a lot of guys. No, and, and I agree. But it's just a matter of at this point, like, who is there that you can bring out That's, that would do anything? Like, you know, who are you going to bring out? John Rothwell? really screwed up another division. And it, totally incidentally, mind you, because... 
you could have done John versus Stipe. And I know they'd been talking about it, but no, John Jones had to be John Jones. <laughs> well, I think Stipe even said he was open to taking the fight with uh, John Jones. I don't know if it would have happened. He did. Um, but apparently, it, I think it was on the table. Or they were at least in early discussions to maybe thinking about doing a fight like that. Yeah, it would have been. I mean, there's no. Had John not, you know, gone all John Jones on us outside the cage, he would have beaten every available legitimate light heavyweight contender. The time would have actually been quite right for him to try a heavyweight bout, and there's no legitimate, uh, there's no free heavyweight contender at the moment. So uh, again, who's a, who is a heavyweight? Who is a heavyweight that's a legitimate contender that's not coming off of a loss that Stipe hasn't right. fought before? It, um, unless you don't see him as a legit contender, Francis Ngannou. He's he's the only one. Yeah, let me let me bring up the uh, UFC's oh, heavyweight oh, rankings here, just for the record. There's Cain Velasquez, but he's in, he's constantly injured, and he's that, that's the thing you can't you can't count on him because. The likelihood right. is he's going to pull out with either a shoulder or a back or, or a knee or what have you. Okay, for right. the record, yeah. is, here is the list of, Uf, of the UFC's heavyweight rankings. This is their official rankings. Uh, you have Stipe Miocic, then you have Alistair, who beat Verdum but was knocked out by Stipe. You have Fabricio Verdum, who was knocked out by Stipe and then just lost to Overeem. You have Cain Velasquez, who is made of glass. Then you have Francis Ngannou, who just hasn't fought the highest level of – who is the only guy on this list for a little bit that hasn't either been beaten or co- is coming off of a loss. You have Mark Hunt, who is scheduled to fight Marcin Tabora in late October, early November. I forget which one. You have Derek Lewis, who's about to fight Fabricio Verdum. Then you have the guys that Stipe hasn't fought. Alexander Volkov, whose biggest win is over Stefan Struve. Marcin Tabora, who's about to get knocked out by Mark Hunt. Alexei Olyanik, who is, much as I have a soft spot for the guy, nine's a bit generous, and he got that off of beating Travis Brown. Stefan Struve, who just lost. Junior Albini, who has, like, one UFC win. Andre Arlovsky, who should not be ranked. Curtis Blades, who should not be ranked, and is coming off of a loss, I seem to recall. If not a loss, it was a very mediocre fight. Travis Brown, who should not be ranked, and Tim Johnson. This is embarrassing. Gentlemen, it is, it is time to call Ben Roswell and bring back his cheat code submissions. That's what I just said, man. Where's, where's Ben Roswell at? I think he's serving a suspension. Where's, uh, where, uh, good Lord, where, why can't we, where's Heath Herring? Keith Herring has not fought since Brock Lesnar smoked him. Hongman Choi. Uh, not fought, I don't think. <laughs> I think it's been a while. Juluzino. Um, I think he did, <laughs> didn't he? So, yeah, Ben Rothwell, he did, get a, he did get a potential anti-doping violation. I don't know if we heard much else after that. That was in March. Gosh. Who, 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 what is Josh Barnett doing? Is he wrestling? Um, I think he's kind uh, of winding down. I don't know if he's still. I don't know if he's going to take another fight. And, and he, he had, he, he he had fight, another. Didn't he? 
He and did, he had if an, I remember correctly. Barnett had another doping violation as well, like the fourth in his career. It's like he's the one guy who could verbally sell the fight, so of course he's not a realistic option. Wow. Yeah. I'm actually looking at the list of UFC heavyweight fighters just in there like that they have signed. The number of guys who are less than three fights into just being in the UFC is pretty significant. I guess we you could do the Nganu fight. It's just an issue of is Nganu ready for a challenge like that? And I mean, I, the fight would. Pro- I don't think the fight would bomb. To be honest with you, I wouldn't be a. Have him. Have yeah. him fight the winner of Deontay Wilder and Anthony Joshua. <laughs> so you want him to fight Anthony Joshua is what you're saying. Or, or Rico Verhoeven. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise you can just wait with Stipe and just wait to book a fight for him for another few months. I guess. But yeah, if they're going for December or January at this point, it is probably just like Francis Ngannou is the the most viable option. If they if they want to keep that schedule, otherwise they might have to wait till like uh, early spring. Is my yeah. thought. But yeah. Uh, yeah, heavyweight, that's, that's, heavyweights, that's just sad. Light heavyweights, the wasteland, and heavyweights kind of just about there too. To be honest with you. Um, yeah, um, I mean. Some, Something else. Here's kind of the last thing I wanted to address. Uh, Daniel Cormier, I guess, you know, being, being the respectful and compassionate individual that he is, is kind of, uh, you know, he's, he's asking fans to give John Jones a break and lay off. He said on Instagram, take a breath, lay off John Jones, let him and his team figure out what's going on and what happened. Um, I was down and some may have kicked me but the majority of you showed compassion and love after the fight John, uh, Jones uh, showed compassion regardless of what has happened as humans we must show compassion John is not on this ride alone remember this man is a family let's respect that you know John is, is such an amazing individual he swore on his heavenly father and his children he didn't use steroids so amazing human being he didn't say this this is those are my comments um i i i i give cormier is a pretty classy individual and i give him all the respect in the world for saying this but i guess my issue is he kind of went back on uh because he was on ufc tonight and he said jones made a mockery of the sport so i mean we have one of the biggest fights of the year. Once again, this guy made a mockery of the sport. This was after um, the fight result was overturned and he was reinstated as champion. So I, I just kind of don't get, like, now he's saying lay off John Jones when, I mean, what, I, mean I, I get the idea of showing compassion and what have you and wanting to wait and see how this is going to turn out. But just a few days before this, he was saying, you know, this guy has made a mockery of the sport. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe he was being emotional, but I don't, I don't think he needs to tell people how to act about John Jones when he's the one who's calling him a mockery. But whatever. Pat, uh, you know, 50 words or less on that. 
I don't doubt that Cormier is being sincere at this point because I think things and hate reached a level towards John Jones that even he didn't anticipate. Timing with it is poor, particularly after the comments, as Jeff pointed out, that he had made on public appearances. And for him to immediate, to almost immediately do an about face, uh, despite how he may or may not actually feel about that the vitriol being thrown Jones's way uh, just seems very phony. And that's the last thing he needs to look like in the wake of everything we found out about John Jones through this past fight. Uh, yeah, I. Much as I dislike the notion that. Uh, the propensity we have in society to denounce people for trying to put their best foot forward as somehow being two-faced or fake, which it's not actually what those words mean. But somehow this got, again, as a society, we perpetuated the myth that one must be their truest id in order to actually be quote-unquote real, which is asinine, but such is life. I, I think Cormier was being sincere on both occasions. I think this is one of those instances where the stuff you get the fir- more removed. Say it. Say it. I said these things. I felt this way in the moment. Maybe I went too far, and I'm sorry. And I know. Just say I know I said these things, and I'm I, I'm going to I'm because go- we all do that. We everyone does. That. Yeah. I think it's human nature in the moment to do things like that. But it's also, I think, in human nature to say to admit you were wrong and just say, okay, we've all said these things. We've all had to say what we had to say about John Jones. So now that we've vented and gotten it all out, let's walk it back and let's just wait and see what happens. And I apologize for what – if you don't feel that way anymore, then admit you said those things, apologize, and then we'll try and move on. I think – I feel like he's pretending – and I think that's kind of what my problem was when he was back on the MMA hour. He's like, like he's acting like this is the human thing to do when something like this happens. Well, maybe, but like you were the one. I mean, you were you were also out going out there saying John Jones made a mockery of you. So I mean, at least admit said those things too. There's a very simple way to express how you you know that you arrived at the wrong conclusion. Few simple words. Upon further reflection, it's a real simple thing. I had an emotional response upon actual review and reflection of the situation, my feelings, so on and so forth. This is the conclusion I've arrived at. It's easy, but uh, again, kind of such is life at the moment, I suppose. Nobody wants to actually admit they said anything in the past and backtracks constantly. And uh, the old Bob Arum quote: "Well, yesterday I was lying." Uh, I don't know. It's again just such as life at the moment is uh, I guess where I, where we can land on that one. All right, thank you both for being here. Always a pleasure to talk with the both of you. Jeff, what would you like to plug? All right, so over in Movies TV, check out my new reviews of um, the Lego Ninjago movie, which is the worst uh, Lego animated movie today. That includes. That includes uh, animated direct-to-DVD video releases. The mediocre sequel to Kingsman, The Secret Service, Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Check out my review of that. Uh, this this week, I will be reviewing American Made, the next surefire Oscar winner for Tom Cruise. 
Uh, I'll be seeing, so I'm seeing that tomorrow, and I'll have a review up for that later this week. And also uh, some game previews I'm working on for uh, Wolfenstein and um, what was the other one? Uh, the Evil Within 2. So those will be in games. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jeff. Look forward to reading those. All right, Pat, anything you'd like to plug this week? Yes, one additional news item that we didn't get to bring up, but I will bring up, uh, based on her scoring of the Canelo Alvarez uh, Gennady Golovkin fight, everyone's favorite judge, Adelaide Bird, has been asked to step down for at least a certain period of time by the Nevada State Athletic Commission, which includes her judging of MMA bouts, not just boxing matches. So we can all breathe a little bit of a sigh of joy in that one. Oh, uh, hallelujah. As far as uh, – in addition, uh, most of you know I am a devout fan zant, as we call ourselves. Paige is coming out with a book that's going to be released, and one of the interesting details within it is that she notes that during her cuts to strawweight in the UFC – she battled anorexia to make weight to be competitive because there was no straw, there was no excuse me flyweight division at the time, and she said she had some very severe weight cuts to the point where her parents wanted her to retire from the sport when they found out just how critical her health issues were. Um, it's just a funny thing to see that an athlete at this level with this amount of fame behind them through Dancing with the Stars can still struggle with that this so particular disorder that we see so many young girls and so many young athletes who are wrestlers and boxers involved in sports and weight classes struggle with. Um, and I hope her book in some way can show people that there's a way out of it and to not use that as a, a way to make weight because it's not ultimately worth it. Uh, so good on her for coming clean with that publicly and trying to help people. Uh, as far as plugs go, this week on Tuesday night, there will be a TV party that night, TV party that night on the Rattlish and Broadcasting Network. Myself and Mark, as is our tradition, will review season 3A of Fuller House. Yes, that's correct, 3A. This is a two-part season that will be released at two different sections. Season 3A was released on Friday. I have finished the show, so if you'd like to hear mine and Mark's thoughts in full on that, please tune in this week on Tuesday night at 9 on the Rattlich and Broadcasting Network. That's 9 Eastern time. And also feel free to call in at the same number you can call in at this show, one three two three six five seven zero nine zero one. I might do that just to give Mark grief about not being able to review it with me. I, I maintain he actually conjured the hurricane as an excuse not to have to view the movie and then, see, and then talk about it with me. I have no proof, but baseless <laughs> accusations. Uh, all right as for me again thanks to everyone who followed along with my coverage or read after the fact for ufc fight night 117 i said publicly that if Ovin saint prue lost i would write a piece detailing the sad sad sorry state of the ufc's light heavyweight division he didn't lose but he did proceed to say he still wants to fight shogun which I'm not. Which might just actually qualify. It, it, it's it's such a strange thing that I might have to write about it anyway. Like him losing would have been endemic of just, again a terrible division. Him winning, and then saying no, no, I still want to fight Shogun. Like it's almost as bad. Like I, I'm almost compelled to write this 
piece just because he said that. So I don't know. Be on, be on the lookout. If I do, if I do, it will be in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. So just keep your eyes open. That that might actually come to pass. Thanks to everyone who read and voted in Factor Fiction last week. I think I won. I didn't check the final tally. Uh, I've uh, Wyatt Bauer, I believe, is how that's pronounced. I'm gonna have to ask him one of these days. And I uh, answered. Is it Bozier? It's. I believe it's Bozier. Okay. Uh, yeah, Wyatt and I went head to head over a few uh, on some questions. So feel free to read those. Wyatt always gives uh, thoughtful responses that always make me wonder why, oh why, oh why didn't I think of that? So thanks to everyone who followed, who you know participated in that. Uh, I think that's it. Again, there's no major MMA event this week, but I will be back covering UFC 216 on the 7th of October. I uh, hope to see you all then. Next week, we will give that event the full rundown. It's really not a bad card. Um, again, it, absent the top two fights, and it, it's an exceptional free TV card. With the top two fights, it's it's a decent pay-per-view. Um, so, anyway, again, we'll give a full preview to that event. Two title fights. Two fighters who I just can't talk about enough. Uh, Kevin Lee and Demetrius... Uh, Kevin Lee. Tony Ferguson and Demetrius Johnson, who I, again, never shut up about when people get me started on them. So tune back in next week at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for our preview of UFC 216. Until then, thank you all so very much for being here, for listening, for sharing us with your friends if you think they'd be interested. For Jeff Harris and Pat Mullen, I'm Robert Winfrey, reminding you all to please continue to be well, be safe, and behave. Thank <laughs> you.